The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. From Acts 1.8 But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then from Acts 28, verse 31, the last verse of the book. Paul lived there two years proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Pray with me. Father, we thank You for Your Word given to us to teach, to direct, to encourage and rebuke, to lift up and to turn us. And I thank You for the book of Acts, a key part of that Word You've given to us and for its message. And I pray, Father, this morning that You would make the themes and the theme of Acts rise up and become apparent to us and then to settle in us for change. Father, we're here in the Christmas season and we are, are thinking about and, and celebrating and singing about You sending Your Son. And Father, also make us mindful that as You have sent Him, so also You have sent us into the same world with a very similar mission. Father, produce change in our church, I pray. Produce change in the hearts of each individual person here. Wherever he or she is right now, produce change by your Scriptures. In the power of your Spirit, draw us to you and change us. It's my prayer for this morning, Lord. Would you do that to the glory of Christ and for the good of your people. Amen. Today we are finishing the book of Acts. Last week we finished the text proper as we looked at the last few verses, but today what we're going to try to do is put our arms around the whole thing as a unit. This book of Acts, sometimes called the Acts of the Apostles, but as we have seen and will clearly affirm this morning, well, it is a record of the Acts of the Apostles, it is more than that, it's also a record of the Acts of ordinary everyday Christians. But beyond that, it's a record of the Acts of God through the apostles and through ordinary Christians. God is doing something. This is a book about what God is up to, what He has done, and what He is continuing to do. As such, it's a book that lifts our eyes upwards, calls us to look upwards and to see Him, to see where He is and what He's doing. And it calls us then after Him. In the words of John in his Gospel, it calls us, this book calls us to, to look out and see the fields that are white for harvest. And to see God, God the Father, Son, and Spirit in those fields harvesting. And then to call us after Him to join Him in the work. God is on a mission and He has placed us under orders. His church. Christians. And I've been preaching over the last two and a half years or so, preaching through the book of John first and then through the book of Acts. 
John, the book that is, that is so much full of high Christology. Here's Jesus, this jewel, this many-faceted jewel. Look at him, and then it sends us out to talk about him, and then moved right into Acts that is so much about mission. I've been preaching those books in the hopes that God would take them and would use them on me and on you personally, and then on us as a body, would use these books to transform us and cause us to be a people that looks outward. That looks outward into the world all around us and is moved by the dearth of God-centered, Christ-exalting worship. That is moved by the dearth of genuine, heart-satisfying joy in people. That is moved by lostness and is compelled by the love of Christ, Christ's love for us and Christ's love for others, is compelled by the love of Christ to step out and speak of Him that some might be saved. That's been my hope of two and a half years. This morning we finish Acts. And I hope that gets cemented in you. I hope it grips you. May He do that in our midst. And towards that end this morning, I'm going to preach a bit of an unusual sermon. If you're first time here this morning, this is not my usual practice, but I'm preaching an unusual sermon in that I will not be tied to any one text, but I'm going to hop all over the book of Acts. Citing things here and there, referring to things here and there. I'm usually more, more focused on one passage. It's a bit unusual, but I'm trying to capture some of the spread of the book and pull out this theme. It's the main theme of of the book as I see it, and the main theme of this morning. God means for His people to wholeheartedly join Him in His mission. Have you? God means for His people, Christians, the church, to wholeheartedly, willingly, eagerly join Him in the work that He's about. And He is about something. He's up to something. He's moving forward. This is a book that is, that is very forward-leaning. All the weight's on the front foot. It's going somewhere. He's up to something. He's about something. So the question then to you, to us, is are you with Him or not? Are you watching Him go on ahead or are you following Him? That's, that's a challenge to us this morning. I'm going to make three summary book-wide observations towards that main summary point. Here's the first one. First summary observation emphasizes the purpose of God throughout all of eternity in the book of Acts and then on beyond the pages of the book of Acts. Here it is. God is still committed to completing His grand global mission. It's always been about something and He is still committed to completing His grand mission. There is something grand that God has always been about. See if you can hear it in these passages. I'm going to refer to several passages here. Very beginning of the book, chapter 1, verse 3. After His resurrection, Jesus was appearing to His disciples during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Chapter 8, verse 12. Philip in Samaria preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. 14.22 Paul encouraging the churches, saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom. 19.8, Paul in the synagogue at Ephesus, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. 
20, 25, Paul saying goodbye to the elders at Ephesus among whom he had gone about proclaiming the kingdom. 28, 23, Paul with the Jews in Rome testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus. And lastly, very last verse of the book, Paul's there proclaiming to everyone the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the theme there? What's the constant thing you hear? The kingdom of God and the Lord Jesus. Jesus is often introduced in context where he's talking to Jews or Samaritans. Kingdom and Jesus, those two things fit together from beginning to end of this book. They're both there. There there are also other passages that don't use the word kingdom specifically, but catch the idea, like in chapter 26, talking about the power of God versus the power of Satan. Those things are linked throughout this whole book. How do they relate? Well, what's a kingdom? Generically, a kingdom is 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 a realm in which a particular king's authority is not only exercised, but also recognized and embraced. So the kingdom of God is the realm in which the authority of God is seen, enacted, embraced, welcomed, and enjoyed. The kingdom of God. And at its creation, this world was all God's kingdom. The place in which His authority was perfect. But the story of the Old Testament is that that did not last long. The creation fell into sin when human beings rebelled against God. And all throughout the Old Testament, there are these couple of strands of the kingdom lost as human beings and then all the rest of the creation suffering from human sin is fallen, the kingdom lost, but God promising to fix it one day. Throughout the Old Testament, those themes are advancing in different ways. Talked about many of the different promises from this Old Testament scriptures. But there's there's a problem in that the, the king has been set aside and rejected, and so the world has fallen. But the king has also said, I'm, I'm going to come back and fix all that by dealing with the primary root of the problem, sin. That's where Jesus comes in. Acts proclaims the kingdom and Jesus. Jesus is the way that God has acted to fix the problem the fallen, rejected kingdom. Listen to Peter before the Sanhedrin in 5, 30 and 31. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging Him on a tree. God exalted Him at His right hand as leader and Savior, or as He would say in chapter 2, God has set Him up as ruler, as Lord and Christ. That's saying, God has raised up this Jesus as the King and the Deliverer. The ruler and the one who delivers from the sin problem. And Peter finishes, to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the one who deals with the sin problem. He gives repentance to people to turn them from sin that He might forgive He's been raised up as the King. Restoring the kingdom within individual human hearts by forgiving sin and restoring us to relationship with God. And then collecting a community of people, the church, in which those ones show what it looks like for God to control a people, to reign over them. As a foretaste of the time when He's going to restore the whole of the creation and banish sin and evil entirely and renew the earth.
Jesus is the king who brings back the kingdom. First in here, here, and one day everywhere. Again and again and again, Acts drives that point home. Talked about it frequently. And my point here is not to elaborate on that too much, but I do need to make clear, because everything I'm going to say after this point assumes that I'm talking to people in the kingdom. But I do need to make clear that if you have not yet personally surrendered your heart to Christ and trusted Him and His death on the cross to pay for your sin, you're still on the outside looking in at the kingdom. You're, you're looking through a window at what is inside joy and rest and love and forgiveness. Throughout the Bible and throughout Acts, constantly the, the Scripture is calling out to you. If that's you, come. Come in. He calls out to you in love and He says things like, Jesus all the time says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. What he's saying is, come into my kingdom and I'll give you rest. I'm a good ruler. You have a ruler, you know. You you do have a ruler and he's not a good one. Acts 26 makes clear that there are two rulers, God or Satan. You're under one or the other. Satan doesn't tell you that because that might frighten you. God tells you that in the hopes of making you aware that you might turn and come out of the power of God to the po- out of the power of Satan to the power of God out of darkness to light. And Jesus bids you come, come to me. Take my yoke upon you. You have a yoke. Get rid of that one, take my yoke. And you'll find the burden is light and easy. So he calls to you, come. But assuming that you have come, assuming that you you are actually in the kingdom, I'm going to speak to you from from that perspective for the rest of the way out here. Given that the emphasis in Acts is on God's kingdom come in Jesus, what are we to do with that? What are we who are in the kingdom to do with that? Well, we're supposed to realize that he's still committed to this personally, individuals, in in the lives of individuals, and in in the church body and in the world. And that should give us a perspective on God that I pray will will challenge and correct something in us and encourage us. Here's what I mean. If you were to have stopped by my house on any given Monday over the last year and a half or so, I'm not always doing this, but there was a really high percentage that you'd stop by my house on a Monday and you would run into me, I'd answer the door, wearing my old shoes and pants and shirt with all kinds of holes in it and torn up, covered with paint splotches and caulking and drywall mud. Maybe my hair would have been white with dust. Maybe I'd been wearing a mask or goggles. And I'd answer the door holding a paintbrush or a hammer or sandpaper or something. Thoroughly immersed in my everlasting basement renovation project. (laughs) Which has been going on forever, but might be coming to a close. I've been doing that forever. That's what I'm about. And so I I answer the door, holding my paintbrush, looking like I look, and you say hi, and I say, hey, how's it going? And you say, fine. Hey, so you want to go throw on a football? And that's, well, I'm a little busy. Well, that's okay. I'll give you a minute. No. What I mean is, I'm a little busy. I'm immersed in something. I'm, I'm committed to that. So 
I'm doing this and I'm not going to switch and, and go do your agenda. As much as throwing around football is fine. But I'm about something. Now, you want to help me? You Come on in. I'll give you a paintbrush. And I've roped a lot of you in that way. <laughs> but I'd love, the, I'd love the help. Come on in. But I'm about this. You'd, you'd see that and you'd obviously recognize it. Just looking at me standing there, wouldn't you? Maybe you'd join me. Maybe you wouldn't. But you'd see what's going on there. But somehow or another, we managed to overlook the similar situation that arises when we come to God. We come to him, and he's standing there, paintbrush in hand, figuratively speaking. Hey, God, how's it going? I'm fine. How are you? You want to come do my thing right now? And God says back, I'm a little busy. I'm committed to something. I'm committed. I'm immersed in. I'm sold on spreading the the scope of my kingdom over all the nations and into the hearts of countless people who don't currently know me. I'm really about that. I have sent my son into the world to seek and save the lost. I'm into that. So, no, I'm not going to change my agenda to come and do your thing. You want to help me, though? I'll give you a paintbrush. I'd love for you to join me in this. Or to switch the analogy a little bit, if you're a high schooler or a junior higher, there's somebody in your class who always manages to get all the other kids to do what he or she wants. Maybe that's you. But if it's not you, you know what it's like. Everybody kind of stands around until so-and-so has an idea, and that's what everybody ends up doing. That's the game that gets played at recess. That's what you do on your street corner. You might have an idea, but you know you have to check with so-and-so because whatever they say is what's going to happen. Remarkably, with God, we try to be so-and-so. That's God's role. This is the thing that needs to be confronted and prayerfully changed in us. Once we see God is committed to something, He's about that. That orients us, or it should. That's thing that needs a change in us. But I said that there also should be some encouragement, and I and I find that as I, as I kind of contemplate what God is doing and the fact that God's committed to doing it, there's, there's a big bit of encouragement there for me as well. Who, if you think this through, who's responsible for my basement getting renovated? You all? Those who have helped me? No. I mean, you can help me, you can advise me, but ultimately it comes down to my decision. I'm the one who writes the check. And if nobody else comes, I still have to do it. It's my job. Whose job is it to spread God's kingdom over the nations? Whose job is it to lift up Christ and draw people to him? Who opens blind eyes, gives repentance? pours out grace that leads to belief. All those things stated in the book of Acts. Who is it that calls out Paul and Barnabas as missionaries and sends them out and steers them by way of vision through Asia to certain cities? God. God's doing it. Which should produce in us a tremendous sense of relief. You're not going to foul it up. I'm not going to foul it up. God's doing it. He makes no mistakes. He doesn't slip up. He doesn't overlook something. 
He doesn't compromise. God is doing this. It should be encouraging to you. Now, I, want to, I do need to acknowledge one thing that's challenging in this because I find that I have a difficult time figuring out what is it exactly that God's doing here. It's easy to talk big picture. God's about spreading his kingdom through the nations, lifting up Christ. That's easy to talk about, but my problem comes when I try to figure out what does it mean to walk with God in his agenda and what actually would be walking against his agenda. I get down to the the details, that's difficult for me. What I figured out is that, I figured out at least this, that I can't just judge behaviors. I can't say that witnessing to other people is always following God in his agenda. Or reading my Bible is always what he wants me to do. That's always contributing to his kingdom work. Or praying is always the right thing. Because it could be that right now he wants me to play with my kids or go to sleep. Or vice versa. I can't just judge the behaviors. I can't look and say these sets of behaviors are always right and these sets of behaviors are always wrong. I want to follow in God's agenda. can't look at the actions. You've got to step a a bit back and look first at the heart. You want to follow after God in, in what He's doing. You have to first say, in my heart, am I sold to that? Am I a person who says, Lord, I don't know what today holds for me, but your will be done in my life. I'm praying, Lord, lead me and use me, not leave me alone to do my own thing. You've got to begin first in in that kind of a heart attitude that says, I am your servant. I am willing to be used in any way whatsoever. Speak and lead. That doesn't make it easy, but that's the place where we have to start. I'm, I'm convinced of that as I've tried to figure it out for myself. It's the only place that we we can start. In the heart that's surrendered to Him. God is still committed to carrying out His grand and global mission. He's doing it. As I've already started to to talk there, we're moving towards the second observation that begins to involve us. Here's the second observation. He introduces the church into the equation. God has a mission... And God is still committed to using His church in His mission. He wants to use us. That's also from the very beginning. One eight, You shall be My witnesses. He could, have, he could have conveyed the Gospel in any number of different ways. He could have supernaturally with a hand written it on the wall. He could speak with a voice from heaven in a vision or in a dream. Those things are all in the Bible, many of them in the book of Acts. God can do that, but He doesn't. He says, you shall be my witnesses. In the original context, right in that that first chapter, the you is referring to the foundational apostles. Those that in verses 2 and 3, He identifies as the ones who had been with Jesus, had seen Him resurrected, and had been taught by Him from His own mouth. The same qualifications apply to Matthias and apply to Paul. They were with him, they saw him raised, and they heard teaching from his own mouth to them. Of course not. You see it right in the verse. The scope of what those, those guys are supposed to do, there's no way that they themselves could cover to the ends of the earth. 
They never made it out of the Mediterranean world. They died. Or the rough area around the Mediterranean. They didn't cover the ends of the earth. But secondly, they're, they're told to stay there until the Holy Spirit comes upon them. The Holy Spirit's going to give them power to witness. Move right ahead to Pentecost. The Holy Spirit poured out to give power to witness. Upon whom is He poured out? Just the apostles? No, all the believers. And they all begin to witness in the power of the Holy Spirit. What we see is that He's speaking originally to the apostles, but He's speaking through them to the whole church. That's what immediately happens. The whole church begins to, get, begins to get in on it. 2.42, all the church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What they heard from Jesus, they pass on to the whole church. And by chapter 4, they're all together praying, God, give us boldness and empower us to be witnesses. All of them are involved in it. The apostles especially, yes. But rank-and-file church members... Chapter 7 and 8, those who are deacons, Philip and Stephen. And then in chapter 8, when the persecution falls in the church, the apostles stay in Jerusalem, but all the nameless Christians are scattered throughout the whole world, and it says that they go proclaiming Christ everywhere. He's using the church. As we saw last week, the way this book ends tells us he is still committed to using the church. It's that forward-leaning aspect. Verses 30 and 31 are a bridge into chapter 29, if you will. The next chapter of Acts. Where it just continues on and on and on that the church bears witness to Christ. That's what God is still committed to doing. What does that mean for us? A couple things. There's two things I think we should take away from that. First, we should be greatly encouraged and deliberate in our proclamation of the Word. More times than you could count, this book records they preached the Word, they proclaimed the Word, they spoke the Word, or they heard the Word, they believed the Word. It's the Word all over the place, meaning the Gospel. He uses the church, how? To proclaim the Word. Which we need to be very careful about because it is, that's not the same as simply loving people or only being concerned with social justice or merely helping people to have good, clean drinking water or only helping with other physical needs. Those things can be very helpful and we should do them. Don't misunderstand me. But the thing that he focuses on is the proclamation of the Word coming off the lips of apostles, yes, but all of us. Why is that important? Think clearly about chapter 20, verse 32. Paul's saying goodbye to the elders in Ephesus there. And one of his last comments to them is he says, I entrust you then to God and to the Word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. There's a lot in that sentence that tells us why it's so important to proclaim the Word. Because it is the Word of grace. It's the message about how God gives grace to people. 
and that Word itself, not just the witnesses, not the teachers, but the Word itself, the power of God is able to, it says, sanctify you and give you the inheritance. The message about God's grace comes, and as it comes upon individual people, it has an effect that my words don't. That my actions don't. It's the Word of grace, the Gospel. Here's the message about what God has done in sending Christ to the cross to grant repentance and forgiveness. That Word and the power of the Spirit, that is what changes people. And if we leave that out, there is no hope of people being changed. That's where sanctification happens. That's where the giving of the inheritance happens. So we must be clear about proclaiming that message, and we should be confident because God says, this is able to do that. So if we want that, we should say, I'm going to proclaim this. It must be about the Word, proclaiming it consistently. But additionally, this is where some of those other things come back around, if He means to use us, we individually and we as a church must be careful that we live lives that adorn the gospel of grace. To adorn something. We talked about this as well, I hope you remember. To adorn something is to put an ornament on it that shows it off to be as beautiful as it actually is. Like earrings accent the beauty of a face. We are to live lives that adorn the Gospel, that show it to be as beautiful as it is, rather than contradicting the message in our lives. Recent weeks we've seen that a lot with Paul. Though persecuted and wrongly imprisoned, Paul is remarkable. Remarkable in his self-control, in the fact that he has so clearly been transformed from a, from a murderous man into a man that is humble, law-abiding, and when he sins, quick to repent. Paul's obviously been changed. His life itself adorns the Gospel. But this emphasis was particularly clear in the first part of the book, in several passages in chapter 2 and 4 and 5. Remember chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Saw there the impact that the church's life had on the surrounding community. It says they were all together learning and worship, selling their possessions and meeting every need. And as people looked on, it says that they found favor in the eyes of the population all around them, and the Lord added daily to their number those who were being saved. Same thing at the end of chapter 4. People looked at the church and said, that's crazy. I mean, crazy in a good way, but crazy. These people over here have a need. They're hungry. And these people over here who do not know them sell their house so that they can eat. They sell their house. They give the money to the apostles and say, do with it what needs to be done. And they feed these people over here. And that happens more than once. Constantly. Ongoing. That is different. That message that they're talking about, whatever it is, it's, some parts are hard to understand, but that's not that kind of change is crystal clear. A community that loves one another, that lays down its life for one another, that forgives, repents to one another, loves, sacrifices. People saw that and said, man, 
Something's true there. Something that we all want but can't ever create in this world. That's amazing. They live lives that adorn the gospel. And then in a passage that has a little more sting to it, chapter 5, we see how the gospel of grace requires holiness as well. Ananias and Sapphira conspired to deceive God, and he struck them dead. And it says twice in that context, chapter 5, verse 5, after Ananias was struck dead, great fear came upon all who heard of it. In chapter 11, after Sapphira's death, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. That's the outsiders. The church and those who heard. That means everybody's heard. And the result, God's hand is still moving, but interestingly it says, nobody dared join them. People held them in high esteem, but more than ever, believers were added to their number. Multitudes of men and women. Which sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? Nobody dared join them, but more people than ever joined them. What's the deal there? I think what it's saying is that when God raised the bar of holiness in His people, it drove away those who were only casual adherents. They wanted nothing to do with that. But conversely, it drew those who were yearning and searching for truth and change and integrity, holiness. And more than ever, the church grew. We have to be a people because God still intends to use us, we have to be a people who proclaim boldly and confidently the Gospel and live lives that adorn that Gospel in our community, our, our sacrificial loving nature, our community, and in our personal and corporate holiness. It's essential to be what God means for us to be. It's the second observation. And the third one, I think, gives hope to the first two. Because if you think through the logic of those two points, it's very easy to become kind of hopeless. God's got a mission that He wants me to be involved in, and to do that, I'm going to have to boldly proclaim the Gospel and live a holy life of self-sacrificing love. And as I consider my own heart for just a minute, I realize that's going to be kind of hard for me. Because I'm not really other-focused. I'm not very bold. I'm rather intimidated by people out there. And frankly, I struggle with sin. How's that going to get done? The third point, I think, answers that. God is still committed to empowering His church to engage with Him in His mission. This also comes from the beginning of the book. Chapter 1, verse 4. He's starting to tell them about what they're, they're going to be about. He's teaching them about the kingdom, but He says, don't go away and do that yet. Don't, don't embark off into the world in this mission, but stay. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. Chapter 1, verse 8 then but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Then you'll be my witnesses. And that's what happens at Pentecost. The Spirit is poured out in power, and people are changed, and they speak the mighty works of God in all these different languages. He tells them, here's your mission, but you can't, I know you cannot. You cannot do it on your own. So don't try yet until I give you power. 
But when I give you power, then you can do it. It's still going to involve you stepping out, taking action, disciplined in your behavior, but I will be providing the power in you to change you, to enable you to do that. That's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a remarkable gift of God to His people. That the Spirit would indwell us in power means so many wonderful things for us as, as a Christian people. But in this book in particular, the Holy Spirit is given to empower witness. He's the one who makes it possible for us to speak the gospel boldly and to live lives that support that. That's what happens at Pentecost. And then throughout the whole book, we see him filling people with power. Raising up apostles as missionaries and sending them out. Directing their steps. This book, if anything, is the book of the Holy Spirit. The book of God come in power on his people. What are we supposed to do with that? I think, obviously, we should respond to the, the command that Paul gives us in, in, Roman, I mean, in Ephesians 5, saying, be filled with the Holy Spirit. We should hear that and say, this is the book about the Holy Spirit. Paul commands us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is... And by the way, this has nothing to do with your view about like spiritual miraculous gifts or anything like that. This is totally apart from all that stuff. Every single one of us must be filled with the Holy Spirit, which means directed and empowered and controlled by Him. God having His way in my heart. Which means I, I repent of sin and I say, God, I'm before You. Use me. Take control of me. Day in, day out, moment by moment. Surrendering to the control of the Holy Spirit. Desperate for Him. Realizing that apart from Him, I can do nothing. Do you think like that? Really? I know you affirm it. You have to. It's in the Bible. But do you think like that? Often we don't. We, we tend to think, I need the Holy Spirit for really big stuff, which thankfully I don't have to do very often. That's wrong. We need the Holy Spirit day in, day out, moment by moment, and for the big stuff, which we should be attempting so frequently that we need Him all the time. You can get away without the Holy Spirit if you don't ever attempt anything for God. If you don't aim to walk with Him and, and be holy and living. If you don't aim to witness to anybody, you don't need the Holy Spirit, I guess. You can probably brush your teeth and tie your shoes all by yourself. But of course we're supposed to be more than that. Of course we're supposed to be more than that. And if you think that and believe that, it will show up in your prayer life. We see the church. The church of Acts is a praying church. Again, from the very beginning, Jesus leaves saying, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And we read in chapter 1, they are together devoted to prayer. Why? Because the thing that they need is not yet there. And so they're crying out to God, God, give us your Spirit. You've called us to a mission and we cannot do it. Give us your Spirit. And they are devoted to that prayer. And then He does it. And so they quit. No. They keep praying. 
Chapter 2, after the Spirit's been poured out and 3,000 were added to the number, they meet together, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, and to prayer. Beginning at chapter 3, Peter and John are going to the temple. Why? To pray. Chapter 4, after Peter and John are, are released for the first time from the Sanhedrin, they gather together. What do they do? Pray. It's a praying church because it consistently realizes God, without you, we can do nothing. Come. Act. Give power to your word that we'll proclaim. Open eyes. We can't. You can. Please do it. Con connect us to people in, in whose lives you're working. Come. That is the heartbeat of people who are following after God and His mission. And if it's not your heartbeat, ask yourself, why not? Ask yourself, why not? Prayerlessness is a sure indicator that you're not really convinced you need God. There is a direct 100% correlation between those two thoughts. Prayerlessness reveals something in you. I'm saying this to you, I say this to myself too as I look at my poor prayer life. But prayerlessness flips over the card and shows you what's really there. I don't pray because I don't think I need to pray. I'll get by without it. Which is saying, I get by without Him. Don't do that. Instead, look and say, He promises me over and over again that He'll hear and He'll answer. He'll come. He'll give the Spirit. He'll meet needs. He'll respond. He's eager to because it shows Him to be gloriously provisionary. It shows Him to be the one who answers. He wants to hear us ask so He can answer. Take heart from that and pray, particularly that He would pour out the Spirit. Pray that He'll grip you with the Gospel that you're about to proclaim. So that the Gospel causes you to marvel at it so that you see the glory of God and are changed by it. Pray for that. Pray for that for each other and for me, for our church as a whole. And pray that He'll move and use us to influence people. To take us to those whom, in whom He is working. To give power to the Gospel. To save people. That's what He's about. Spreading His kingdom reign in Jesus for His glory and for the good of countless people. And He wants to use us, not in our own power, but in His. Pray. Pray for Him to fill you with the Spirit. And then step out. God means for His people to wholeheartedly join Him in His mission so have you? That's the question. I want to close off the book of Acts with a bit of a description about the kind of church that I think this book would have us to be. And it's the kind of church that I certainly want to be involved in. 
It's implied in all that I've said so far, but I want to be really clear about it in about two paragraphs here. My hope and my prayer, as I'm convinced God would have this to be His church, have His church to be like this, is that we would be a family. One that is remarkably, almost otherworldly-ish, remarkably giving in sacrifice and care and compassion for one another here. Right in here. It's a remarkable unity that does not come at the expense of doctrine. Truth. Chapter 2, they were devoted to not just fellowship, but to the teaching of the apostles. That we would be a church that is remarkable in our unity and our care and compassion and is also remarkable in our passion and enthusiasm for the teaching of the Scriptures that wants and yearns for the ministry of the Word to be alive in us. And coupled with a vibrant atmosphere of prayer and consistent, surrendered spirit dependence, we are a holy people seeking to honor Him in all areas of our life and filled with deep joy because of it. Holiness and joy go together. Holiness and joy go together. We would be a people with that kind of an atmosphere, that kind of a community, that when those come in from the outside, they would find another world in here. And not simply another rendition of that one. They would find another world in here. But it wouldn't just require them to come in because we're going to go out. We're going to go out to meet people of all colors, shapes, and sizes. To meet them where they live. And to love them where they hurt. And to serve them where they need. While being clear... That the kingdom has come in Jesus. And they are invited in and must come. That we're clear about that in a bold and wise and compassionate and loving way. I hope that we become a church like that. I think it is clear that God hopes we become a church like that. It's my prayer. It's what I'm working towards and praying towards. And so I invite you, become that church. Start by becoming a person like that. A person that is other-centered in giving and sacrificing and loving and committed to doctrine and holiness while going out to love and serve and help others in the name of Christ. May He make us that kind of church. And when He does, to God will be all the glory. Amen. Let me pray. Father, here in Acts, You have given us a tall order. But you have also given us great encouragement that you are about this mission.
and that You will give power to us to join You in it. And I pray, Lord, then do that. Give the power of the Spirit to us, Your people. Even right now, Lord, I pray that You would be at work in those here in this room who are not Your people, because I'm sure there are some. Be at work in them to call them to You and pour out grace on them. Save them. Forgive them. Make them Yours. And then all of us together, Lord, would You move us out following after You in fullness of joy. Father, do that, I pray. Not just right now, today, but tomorrow and the day after. Make us a church that pleases You. That is committed to Your mission with You. And I pray this in Christ's name, to whom You promised to give all of the nations as His inheritance. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.